Day. Doing okay? Welcome once again to the community church. Thanks for joining us in person and online as we prepare to begin a new book and a new series this morning. We've spent the past year in the book of the Acts. Last Sunday we looked at the biggest takeaways from that journey and tried to sum up uh, really that 12 months of of looking at that book, and I think it was summed up in Jesus' words in chapter 1. Remember the disciples who stood there in Bethany as Christ ascended from earth. Think of this. Think of this. But before he ascended, Luke says that Jesus had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, and that also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What in the world must that have been like? Post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, prior to his ascension, giving convincing proofs as if being raised from the dead wasn't proof enough, But he stuck around for 40 days longer and gave some more convincing proofs to people like Thomas, right? And to others concerning the kingdom of God, he shared these messages. And the final message that he gave, which was our big takeaway last week from the book of the Acts, think about this. At the conclusion of the earthly incarnation of the God of creation... He could have said anything he wanted to say. But with his final breaths before he ascended back to the Father, the one-time event in all of history, here's what he said. Wait for what the Father promised. Before he went away, he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, even to the end of the earth. So after all was said and done, everything that we read in Acts over those three decades, whether it was Peter and John on their way to the temple, whether it was the church enduring under persecution and hardship, or Saul being converted, whether it was Philip being translated, after all of that, Jesus says, listen, You're not going to do any of it without the Holy Spirit empowering you to become my martus, my witnesses. None of this is possible without the Spirit of God, which tells me there's absolutely no way that our church in the 21st century will look anything like the church of the first century apart from the Spirit of God in us and upon us and through us, empowering us to be his witnesses, to live the spirit-filled, spirit-led life that he's called us to live and to become the people he's called us to become. We don't want that year that we spent in the book of the Acts to be a year of futility, but that's all it is apart from the Holy Spirit. So let's pray right now. Father, would you... Would you help us? Would you fill us today with your Holy Spirit? Lord, these are just pixels on a screen or 
ink on a page, Father, if your spirit doesn't breathe life into us, if you don't empower us and give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church. And then, Father, if you don't give us strength in these physical bodies, if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead doesn't dwell in us and quicken our mortal bodies, Father, we'll never be the witnesses you've called us to be. So we pray in this moment, Father, quicken our mortal bodies. Give us attentiveness to your word this morning and give us hearts that would respond to the leading of your spirit in us. As Brandon said, not just here and now, but every day for as long as we have breath. In Jesus' name we ask you, Lord, let it be. Amen and amen. So let's begin a new adventure. And as far as we know, one of the earliest written epistles of the New Testament, believed to have been written by a man referred to as the brother of Jesus. Care to take a wild guess? Somebody said James. That's exactly right. The book of James. This is where we're going. We're going to start a new series in the book of James, which might require a little bit of disambiguation. Disambiguation. You familiar with this word? If you've ever seen Wikipedia or some of these search engines, you know, you're looking for, let's say you want to find information about Michael Jordan, right? And you look it up and guess what? Lo and behold, there's more than one Michael Jordan. And so they have to disambiguate and say, which Michael Jordan are you trying to find, right? There's more than one New York. Are you talking about the city or the state or someplace in another country that was also uh, colonized by, the, by Great Britain and there's a New York somewhere else? So you have to disambiguate. And I think when we start here at the outset of this book of James, it's kind of similar when you're reading through the Gospels and the Acts. You hear the name James more than once. And there are these various Jameses that are listed throughout the scripture, and we want to look at a couple of them quickly before we begin reading so that we can disambiguate and find out to which James we're referring. There's James the Great, as he's referred to affectionately in church history, son of Zebedee, who's also the brother of John. Remember them? James and John, the sons of thunder, right? They wanted to pray down fire from heaven on their enemies. God, should we, Jesus, should we pray down fire from heaven and, and destroy them now? Jesus is like, settle down. Sons of Thunder, settle down, relax. He gave them this nickname. And this particular James was one of the 12 disciples. He's the one who was killed by Herod in Acts 12, if you recall. James was killed by the sword. He was known as James the Great or the Greater to disambiguate him from James the Less, as this second or other James was known. Whether it was stature or age, we don't know, but these are the distinctions we're given. Some of the ways in which they're described, James the greater, James the lesser. James the less was also identified as being the son of Alphaeus. He too was one of the original 12 disciples. So how confusing must that have been? No wonder they had to say greater or lesser or son of him or so. Like two of the 12 disciples are named James. But then there was this third James, at the very least. There may have been others. But this third one, James the Just, as he is affectionately known, also known as the brother of our Lord. And that moniker is taken from Matthew 15, in which the people of Nazareth, now think about this, the people of Nazareth who watched Jesus grow up, they said of Jesus, is his mother not Mary and his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? 
They were saying, we know who you are. We've watched you grown up. We know who your family is. We know who your brother is. And some people in some denominations can't bring themselves to believe that he was actually the half-brother of Jesus because of their regard for Mary or whatever the case may be. They believe maybe he was a cousin or some other family member. It's a little bit of a stretch if you ask me. It's possible. It's possible. But we know this. The people who knew him the longest referred to James as the brother of Jesus. And the writer of this epistle that we're about to consider is believed to have been this James, the brother of our Lord, who was not one of the 12 disciples. But he was the first leader of the Jerusalem church. That's mentioned in Acts 21. Remember, Paul came and reported to the church council. Essentially, Paul came and reported to James, who was the leader of that council of elders in Jerusalem. And it's believed that James the Just met his death in the early 60s AD, meaning he likely died around the end of the Acts account, having probably written this epistle about a decade or so prior, making it one of the earliest, if not the first New Testament writing, only about 15 to 20 years after the time of Christ, putting the timing of this letter firmly in the book of the Acts. And because of that, it gives us a glimpse into the leader of Jerusalem, right in the middle of this whole uh, journey that we took through the Acts of the Apostles. And so we get a glimpse into this sort of father heart, pastor's heart, apostle who's going through all of those things in Acts. Here's a glimpse into what it was like for him and what he sees as this highly valued, important subject matter to deliver to the disciples. And hopefully this helps us disambiguate a little bit. Now, as we turn our eyes to the book of James itself, it's comprised of five chapters and a variety of admonitions and kingly, or excuse me, kingdom wisdom. But if I were to ask you, uh, what do you know about the book of James or what's something that you've heard about it? What's your most familiar thing that would come up? Anybody? The book of James. What do you think about? Works, consider joy. Those are the two. I've said, yeah, yeah, Ed. Resist the devil. That's good. That's good. That's something a little, little less common. Usually everyone says, oh, it's, it's faith without works, right? And we have this idea, and that's from the second chapter, and we're going to get into all of these different things. Really, he speaks on genuine faith leading to practical action might be a way to say it. In fact, that genuine faith produces, produces these works or this practical action. Throughout the letter, he argues for that. And he challenges the people of God to live and to act as the people of God. Taking nothing away from some of the other themes, enduring through trials, asking God for wisdom, bridling the tongue he addresses. He talks about true religion, this idea of regarding and visiting those who are in need, not just talking about it, but actually doing something about it. He has a lot to say about the rich and the humble and the contrast there. He saw some partiality happening within the body and said we should have no partiality in the church. We're going to visit all of these themes in the coming weeks in addition to things like confession and prayer and healing. But for now, we're just going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1 as we all receive this invitation and and this admonition to embrace the wisdom of letting joy lead us. The wisdom of of letting biblical joy lead us in the life, the challenges that we face 
especially when we might otherwise expect joy to be absent. The Scripture even says there's a time, right, for rejoicing. There's a time to be sad. And we have this idea in our minds of which is which. And in that time to be sad, we don't want to hear anything about joy. We, that's the time the Bible even says it's time to be sad. Well, there's a time to be sad. But somehow the father heart, apostle heart of James in the middle of the persecution and the challenges that they were facing in that book of the Acts, he says, listen, if there's any wisdom I can share with you, it would be this, that you would let joy lead you in your journey. This ironic, counterintuitive, biblical joy this ironic kingdom dimension, it's counterintuitive, it's against our natural inclination, but as he makes his case, we come to realize the instability of allowing our feelings or our circumstances to lead us wherever they would lead us. He said if we do that, that's the fruit of double-minded doubt. But he admonishes us instead to choose single-minded bedrock faith. And that if we would allow joy, not in the emotional sense, but in the biblical sense, to lead us in every circumstance we face, then we'll bear the fruit of the kind of spiritual endurance that empowers us to the end of this earthly race that we have in such a way that we would be complete and lacking nothing at the end of it. Instead of just trying to get across the finish line, hoping to make it, he said, no, man, if you have the wisdom to allow joy to lead you through your trials and challenges in this journey that you have through life, you're going to come to the end of this race complete and lacking nothing. How many of you would like to meet your earthly end in that way? Amen. Amen. I would too. Let's consider the words of James, starting in chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, unstable in all his ways." But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And immediately you get a sense that this James has a way with words. He has a writing style and an approach that's all his, his own, really, blending the counsel of a church father with almost this wisdom literature of Proverbs or some of the wisdom books in the First Testament. 
But first of all, he reveals himself as the author in verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings, he says. We always want to talk about the context as we try to hear the word of the Lord. And as we see in this first verse, though he's the de facto leader of the Christian way, the Christian church, the Christian movement overall at this time, he identifies himself as what? A bondservant. And not just of God, but also a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an interesting inclusion here. As we understand from other passages about the earthly family of Jesus, they weren't all 100% on board with him the whole time. John 7 says in his account, his brothers, speaking of Jesus, told him that he should have some public demonstrations in Judea and that he should show himself to the world if indeed he, if you're really the Messiah, come on, let's do, let's do something here in a public way so everyone will really know whether or not you're indeed the Messiah. James said, excuse me, John said, not even his brothers believed in him. So at a minimum, James, this brother of the Lord, was a skeptic early on. But at some point, at some point, he became a believer. Maybe it was when Jesus appeared to him post-resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was raised on the third day and appeared to James specifically. But at some point along the way, he went from doubter to believer annoying little brother to the brother of our Lord to the extent that he bound himself, as it were, to God the Father and God the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says he's writing to the 12 tribes, and we can understand that to represent the Gentile believers as well who've been grafted in to the branch that is Israel. And he sends greetings, which I think we should know is more than just salutations or, or the typical greeting at the beginning of a letter. He's saying more than, hey guys, what's up here? He's actually, the Greek word there is the same word that's used in Matthew 2.10 when it says that the wise men rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. It's the same word used in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So this word greetings is another word for rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And it means a little more than uh, good day, sir. Good day, friends. He's tipping his hand here and letting you know right at the outset that joy and rejoicing to an exceeding extent is what he has in mind for this letter. So in terms of context, we know who's speaking, right? We know to whom he's speaking. We're beginning to understand what is being said. We know approximately when it's being said. It's somewhere around the late 40s or early 50s AD as the Christian way is growing quickly under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. And we know this, that the Christian way is undergoing intense, intense resistance and persecution. And so it's under this weight of leadership and persecution that this apostle, bishop, pastor, however you want to say it, this James is greeting and admonishing the people of God with all these things in mind, not to mention the clash of cultures that's going on. I mean, how do you deal? Remember everything they dealt with. Wait, these Gentiles are becoming believers. Are they supposed to follow Judaism? Do they have to follow these laws? Or what do they need to do here? 
or or in Acts six when uh, the widows uh, weren't being served like the the others. You know, there's there's some tension between them and there's these conflicts around the culture. He's going through all of these things when he sits down to write this letter to the church and to us. And at the very beginning, right in verse 2, a few different translations say it different ways. They say, count or esteem or reckon. The New American Standard says this, consider, consider. So in light of all that he's witnessed over the course of his life, watching the Messiah himself grow up, from being a lad to becoming a radical rabbi, from being a skeptic himself to becoming a bondservant of this radical new rabbi from enduring persecution to leading the entire christian way he says consider consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter trials as we have knowing knowing that the testing of your faith will produce endurance in you like it's producing in us He could have said anything, but he said consider. And that word consider is rendered from the Greek word hegeomai. It's the same root word for our word in English, hegemony. If you're familiar with that, having to do with leadership or dominance or being led by or ruling over something, the first thing that the Bishop James says here essentially is to be led or to be ruled by joy. Of all things, hegeomai, to consider and to be led by joy when you encounter various trials as we have. Let joy lead you in your response. And this is some godly wisdom, as we'll see here in just a moment, but these are hard-won admonitions from someone who's qualified to teach. James knows what it is to endure actual trials to watch his big brother Jesus endure trials and carry a cross he knows what it is to be fleeing persecution and facing rejection and the first and best counsel that he can offer is for the people of God to allow joy of all things to lead them and to envelop them in their thinking and in their way of living as they navigate the various trials of life. He could have said, let humility lead, or let love lead, or let prayer lead. But he says, here's where we found success. Here's how Brother Jesus did it. Here's what I've witnessed He was able to endure and overcome his cross because he let joy be the focus and the fuel and the hegemon and the motivator, motivator, the ruler over him and his circumstance. He didn't let circumstance rule over him. He let joy rule over the circumstance. For the joy set before him, Jesus what? Endured the cross. Right? Hebrews 12. What was the means through which he was able to endure? It was joy. And that's a little ironic for us, don't you think? Because we generally associate joy with how we feel. 
And it's hard to feel joyful when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane or when you're walking up that hill carrying a cross. We associate joy with things currently going well. We associate joy with things presently going our way with outcomes that are pleasant and present in the here and now. That's how we look at joy generally. But apparently, biblical joy is something different. Apparently, biblical joy is about something that is not yet. Something that is surely coming in this direction, but it's not here yet. It hasn't fully arrived. And knowing that, James says, knowing that, knowing that it's not currently present, but it's on its way to me. Beauty is on its way to me. Redemption is on its way to me. Ecstasy is on its way to me. Communion, adoption, glorification is on its way to me. Somehow it's like rocket fuel in the middle of something that I'd rather not be enduring right now. But if I can embrace the wisdom of letting biblical joy lead me in it, all of a sudden I see it for what it is. It's temporary and it's light and it's momentary because there's something on its way to me. And that's biblical joy. Simply knowing empowers me. To endure for the joy set before him from the knowledge of this prearranged fulfillment, satisfaction, this outcome. Imagine satisfaction. What must that feel like? One day I'm going to have it. I have a little taste of it now and we get glimpses. Some people are super inspiring to me. It's almost as if they walk in this area or dimension and maybe you can. Maybe I'm sure we can walk in more of it than we do now. I know this, we're not walking in as much of it now as we will then. And so whatever we taste here, that's wonderful. It's just a down payment on what's coming to me. And that knowledge empowers me to get through this thing. It doesn't mean I'm whistling Dixie every day. Jesus is sweating in the garden, right? He's carrying a cross. Paul's being stoned and thrown outside the city. But for Jesus, knowing that it was set and on its way to him, empowered him to endure. And now he's taken receipt of that joy. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's won redemption for you and me. He's reconciled creation to himself and he was empowered by the joy of the future that was set before him because of that knowledge. He was able to endure and that's exactly what James says that knowledge of our future outcome will do for us. It will produce endurance in us as it did in him, as it did in that early church and in Christ himself. If we'll let it, if we'll embrace the wisdom of letting joy be our leader, biblical joy. If we'll let this kind of joy lead us, if we'll let the powerful picture of the future dominate our minds instead of the challenges of the present, instead of being bondservants to our feelings or slaves to happiness or slaves to everything working out pleasantly and presently, 
Would we be willing to hold out for something better that is not yet? This is the case that James is making here. This is the wisdom that he's learned that's helped him and his brother and these early believers to navigate truly difficult and trying times. We're not talking about car trouble or leaks in the basement. It's more than enduring five o'clock traffic on the way home that we think is a trial. They were being thrown to the lions and being crucified and being burned at the stake. And somehow there was wisdom in allowing biblical joy to lead them through those trials. They needed something more substantial and more eternal than just happiness in the moment that would empower them and provide endurance in the middle of it all. And if that sounds far-fetched or unattainable to you or like some pipe, dream, religious, fluffy hope, the idea of allowing eternal joy of the future kingdom of God to be foremost in your mind and heart as you navigate the trials of life, if you aren't able to see that and do that, if we're falling short of that, James says that it's like we lack wisdom that's necessary in order to do that. But he says God has a great solution here for that. He tells us, ask. Ask for wisdom. Now, I know many people have used that scripture to ask for wisdom about many other things, and that's great. I'm sure it applies to that as well. But contextually here, what's he talking about? He's talking about the rocket fuel of biblical joy to endure in the face of trial and persecution and real spiritual challenge. And there's wisdom in doing that. And if you lack the wisdom to let joy lead, it's real simple. Ask. God, grant me the wisdom to walk in the way, to do it how Christ did it, to learn from James this truth that the Holy Spirit inspired him to convey to us, to ask God for the kind of joy that grants endurance amid trial, the kind of endurance that grows and equips us and completes us as believers, the kind of joy and the sort of endurance, the brand of equipping that's wise in God's eyes. If anyone lacks that kind of wisdom, he says, let him ask. In verse 5, let him ask of God who gives to all generously, and it will be given to him. If that sounds too easy, and if there's any doubt in your mind, James says, you're being double-minded. You're being double-minded. It's like a, a surf being tossed to and fro in the sea yesterday morning i i woke up and the ladies were getting ready for their breakfast here and i and i opened the chain and i uh turn on the heat for them and and i'm hearing this sound i'm hearing this roar i'm like what is going on is this the wind what is it listening it's kind of foggy i couldn't really tell what was going on i'm hearing this roar coming from the ocean front and at some point i hop on my bike and i ride down and i gotta see i gotta find out what's going and man the waves were being tossed about just getting smashed on the rocks no wave with any hope to do anything except go where it was told to go and do what it was told to do james says this is what you're like if you have any doubt listen i can promise you at some point 
over the coming weeks and months, this book of James is going to offend somebody in this room. I can almost guarantee it's going to offend everybody in this room. I promise you this, if you hear with ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to you through this word of the Lord, it's going to be offensive to your flesh, it's going to be offensive to your doubt, it's going to be offensive to anything in you that would rather have your own way than to say, Lord, I want to do it your way. And so we could hear someone say, oh, yeah, but, you know, unbelief or doubt isn't the end of the world. Didn't that guy come to Jesus and say, Lord, help my unbelief, but Jesus healed his son anyway? I recall that man saying, Lord, I believe. Help me. Help me with that unbelief part. Lord, I believe. And Jesus acted on his belief, not on his unbelief. And in the same way here, James says, listen, don't doubt. We know we wrestle with these things. He said, you're going to be like the wave just thrown about by the sea and have no chance of doing anything but being at the whims of your own emotions or the circumstances that you face. Don't be double-minded. Don't give in to doubt. No, ask in faith, believing, and don't waver at all. And he's going to give you the wisdom that you need to let joy lead so that you can endure in the middle of the trial. It's going to offend our flesh at some point. Either we'll embrace the truth that is an affront to our flesh and our sin and our wavering and our doubting and our double-mindedness, or we'll reject the truth to our own hurt. Do you, do we allow biblical joy to lead us in the middle of of our trials or not think about it and if we lack the wisdom to do that are we willing to ask God for that wisdom and if we are willing to ask are we willing to ask in faith without any doubting this is the wisdom and the challenge and the solution that James is presenting to us here today Who among us will accept this challenge? Who among us will listen to wisdom and choose to be led by joy, biblical joy? That means when you lose in this life, you're not unhappy. When you're in the middle of a trial, You choose to consider. You have to count. That's not about the present. That's about the future. I'm counting on what God is doing and what's coming to me. Do we believe God or do we not? Do you believe that he'll heal every sickness and wipe away every tear? Do you believe that there will be no more night and there will be a new heaven and a new earth? Would we hold to that wisdom and let those realities lead us in this life and lead us through trials instead of just thinking about our trials all day long or complaining about our trials all day long? You might experience high positions or humble positions, James says, no matter the sun is going to rise and like the grass that withers, the flower falls and the beauty fades, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits 
will fade away. And every one of us in the middle of our pursuits in this life will fade away. Being led by joy, led by the spiritual eternal realities of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that everything is going to be happy in the here and now. It wasn't that way for Jesus. It wasn't that way for James. It just means that the consideration of the eternal spiritual realities will afford you the ability to endure anything that comes your way. The joy set before him gave Jesus the will and the strength and the endurance to bear his cross and the wisdom of allowing joy, that same powerful picture of the future that's on its way to you and me, that will give us the power to endure and to carry our cross. Father in heaven, we ask for that wisdom in this moment. If you lack wisdom, if you lack the wisdom to allow joy, biblical joy, to lead you in your trials, ask him now. Ask him for the wisdom. Ask him for the wisdom to see the true reality that is on its way to you by faith. Thank you, Lord. Your word to us is that if any man lacks wisdom, he can come and ask of God who gives generously. Thank you, Lord, that you give generously to those who ask. Thank you, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you can strengthen us. You can give us peace in the middle of the storm. You can give us power in the middle of our weakness, Lord. You love to, I heard somewhere that you love to show yourself strong on behalf of those who are weak. I heard somewhere that the eyes of the Lord look to and fro around the earth looking for those who he can be strong on their behalf. Father, be strong on our behalf. Give us the wisdom and the joy to endure whatever comes our way this day and this week. And as we proceed through this study of your word, Lord, may we embrace it this morning. May your word find a heart, a home in our hearts, Father and bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of endurance. Lord, that we would be complete and lacking nothing. Grant us the wisdom of letting joy lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. If you would stand as we're dismissed from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 15, he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Father in heaven, let it be. Fill your people with your joy, with your spirit, with your hope, with your life. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Father. Amen. And amen. The Lord bless and keep you on your journey this day. As always, we're here to pray with anyone who wants to pray. Otherwise, God bless you. Thank you.